Welcome back to another episode of Agile Way podcast, where we explore challenges organizations face on their Agile journey. How to become great Scrum Master, how to change your leadership style, or how to embrace agility at the organization level. I'm Suzy Shukova, Agile coach, certified Scrum trainer, and author of the great Scrum Master book and Agile leader book, and I'm your host for this podcast. I'm passionate about business agility, organizational culture, and Agile leadership, and that was the reason why I decided to start this podcast, to share with you my experiences and stories from my Agile journey. second series of this podcast focuses on business agility and it's sponsored by Emergence Journal. So welcome everyone. Today I have here Gene Janel. He's an agile coach for as far as I remember and today we talk about simplification. We talk about that maybe it's time for organizations not to scale and not become bigger and just simplify their way of working. So can you tell us more about this? Hi Susie and thank you for calling upon me. To be quite frank, I'm puzzled with the whole uh, dilemma that so many organizations have nowadays. Everyone wants to uh, scale, uh, scale up, um, enterprise level scaling, enterprise level agile coaching slash scaling. Almost like if you're big, historically, traditionally, you need to scale up and get bigger in how you work. And of course, this is all uh, coming back to how well people understand what agility is. If people substitute the word agility with the authentic original term that was used for it, uh, aka adaptiveness, then in order for us to scale adaptiveness, we need to have adaptiveness to begin with in the first place. So if you take an average uh, team, a single team, and it's not adaptive, not nimble, not responsive, uh, not product-centric, not customer-focused. And if you try scaling that uh, just by applying the same jargon and the same buzzwords, we call it an agile theater also, to multiple teams, you're going to end up with more teams um, going through the circus and doing going through the motions and uh, pretending, creating an illusion, being adaptive, but really just um, in name only. So we have scale up dysfunction. We have amplified dysfunctions and took it to the power of uh, you know, some high number, instead of actually improving in a very simple, uh, in a rudimentary way, and then deciding whether or not we need to scale. So in my book of record, organizations that are on the hunt for scaling methodology or scaling framework, uh, they've missed a note. They've missed the uh, you know, communication. <laughs> I think there is a gap between their own system optimizing goals uh, could be product centricity, uh, customer you know, customer focus, and what they actually op- how they operate down below. And my other big observations and also concern is that oftentimes people that drive these changes and these transformations are the very people that um, are locally optimized not to remove complexity, and uh, they actually have a lot at stake. <laughs> Um, ex-managers, ex-PMO, ex-governance, people that used to be, you know, do, used to do all of the ex-traditional stuff, and now they are in charge of agile transformation and scaling. So guess what? They will be just 
relabeling old complexity with new fancy trendy terminology so i can relate to that but now imagine you go to this organization where you have those traditional people trying to relabel what the, and then you might have some people who really want to achieve that change so what is your recommendation for the people who want to transform that uh, mindset probably in my neck of the woods my spectrum of influence really varies from large fintech pharmaceutical uh, insurance companies on one end hundreds of thousands of employees to smaller product companies where maybe a few dozen or a few hundred companies so dynamics are different but um, needless to say, you can have uh, true buyers and true uh, genuine early adapters in both instances. And also you can have laggers and, I guess, terminology relabelers and, uh, and, and hijackers on, in both cases. I'm not going to say this so that I can be judged upon later for this, but I do want to triage and profile my opponent. So whether I speak to a senior executive or uh, a developer or somewhere, uh, someone who works uh, at operates like at a more tactical level, first, I need to understand my uh, patient. You know, I use psychology and psychiatry uh, analogy a lot. I would first um, triage my opponent to understand who I'm, who I'm um, dealing with to associate with his or her personal needs and prerogatives and goals. Because uh, there was an expression, you know, paraphrasing people, uh, stand uh, within their views and perceptions based on where they sit organizationally. So that's not unimportant. Uh, but then and then again, again, based on my understanding and learning, I would approach this perhaps differently. And my preferred method, preferred tool of approaching, I call it a very powerful coaching tool. And it's not JIRA or Rally version one of ESTS. This is called system thinking. System thinking is a very powerful coaching tool that helps me engage with people of different uh, levels, different caliber and different type in powerful conversations where they learn for themselves how to see things that they no longer can unsee. My approach really is, you know, it, it's a gamut of tips and tricks, but it comes down to treating every opponent and every colleague or coachee or mentee or trainee individually based on what they are. And uh, of course, last thing I will say, the line of work that I do requires me to engage with individuals, traditional enterprise language level. So, you know, traditionally speaking, C-level plus minus a few folks, because without them actually buying uh, into this agile thing, genuinely and personally, we can't really do much. And this is more of a cliche statement, oh, we need senior engagement. True, but not just in spirit and slogans and budgeting. I mean, I will take the money, uh, and you know, if they give forty million million dollars for this transformation, sure, we need the money. But more so, we need them to roll up the sleeves and to engage deeply uh, and intimately and actually make organizational changes. And that's where organizational design is to me the most important thing. So, can you give us some example, like um, a time where you use it and it went really badly, and a time where you use it and it went really great? Sure. For example, I'll give you. I'll start with the, you know, I guess when we did not go as so well uh, recently, I was um, in in discussion with a relatively senior person, um, a C level person, and and he was, uh, you know, he was powerful. He was empowered. He was able. He he was able to control certain elements of organizational design that would change things for better. Specifically, he could implicitly make changes that would improve career path 
and um, monetary incentives of individuals that would be involved in this change. And that's uh, uh, very important um, because why should we talk about cross-functional developers if they're not being paid for becoming cross-functional or they're not being incentivized to learn new technologies? So needless to say, uh, he was skeptical and he was like, well, can we do it in another phase? Let's do some, let's grab some low hanging fruits. And I was like, yeah, sure, you can take it, but uh, that fruit won't, will not make your effort fruitful. It will create an illusion of changes. It will be superficial, like a broad and shallow. At your level, you probably don't need a check mark. Why would you really even bother doing this? You don't need a check mark so when someone's going to recognize you. Why are you doing this? Is it a peer pressure? Well, not in so many words. What I then realized, this person had two years before retirement, and they could care less about really making any significant changes or rocking the boat for themselves and for others. They just wanted to get their retirement package, which was sizable, and get the hell out. So why bother? You know, everyone is a human. So I always say you have to look for people that have a true ambition uh, to change and good reasons to change. And I sometimes even say, you wanna look for a person that has a state of urgency to change. If someone is comfortable and complacent, and therefore they're complacent, then they're not your buyer. They're not your goal. And just to answer your question further, um, a good example um, in the same vein was with another senior exec, a different company where when approached and um, you know being presented through system thinking, as a matter of fact, some of the uh, shortcomings that um, traditional legacy budgeting and, and, and the way they finance their efforts have uh, impact on team dynamics, team structure, team longevity. That was a huge aha moment. And instead of uh, saying, no, 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 we're going to continue doing all things the old-fashioned way, let can just work around finance and budgeting and change things at the team level. No, she was, she, it was her. She was actually very keen into looking into things uh, deeper. And um, she was very serious about uh, moving away from projectized uh, program-centric centric and portfolio-centric budgeting and started looking more into product-centric budgeting because guess what? Customers uh, were buying her products, not projects, not programs, not portfolios. So it really depends. She had um, at least 15 years, I think, based on her, I think her age. She had at least 15 years to continue doing what she was doing. So obviously her personal time horizon uh, explained why she was more serious about this. Uh, speaking of your uh, like experience, right? What is the biggest learning you gain on your journey? I'm sure you go up and downs and up and downs, but what is the okay. one learning you want to take out from that? I guess my personal learning, I guess maybe it comes with you know partially with age, partially with experience. I guess both in my case <laughs> uh, is that. You can't, certain things you just can't, and sometimes you, it takes time to develop thick skin. Um, you can't take personally some of these, um, you know, some of these potential um, emissions or even, you know, no-go zones or failures that you may encounter. Um, you, as someone who has done this for, for many years, I have learned that there is such thing as, hey, it's time to push away from the table. You can't be banging ahead against the wall if someone explicitly, intentionally isn't willing to, to listen to you or even listen to themselves. So there is implicit and explicit resistance. You have to know how to read both. 
So it's perfectly fine. It would actually have good service to your client if at one point by pushing away from the table, you made that gesture, hey, I've done enough for you. Uh, from here on, you either on your own or call me back when you're ready to move further. So that's one of the uh, higher level learnings. Maybe seven, eight years ago, maybe even five years ago, I would continue pushing forward. I would, yeah, look, I always assume a positive intent and I always give people a chance to prove otherwise. But if at certain point you realize, okay, um, it ain't worth your time, it's not, wor it's not worth their time, and you actually are earning uh, not as good of a credibility by staying engaged with someone who isn't improving on your watch, on your shift. So you might as well make a choice. And, uh, and I'm sure, you know, you know, you will find something else. So that, that was prob that's prob probably my biggest aha moment and my biggest learning. You have to make sure your, your time and energy are worth it. What was the turn in yourself? Like we speak about simplification, mm -hmm. not scaling, don't make things bigger, right? So you have to grow into that, right? Because America specifically, at least in my mind, that's about growing. If you're not bigger, if you're not growing, you're like that. That's uh, in my mind, you know, my European understanding of America in a way. So uh, you're European by background as well. So maybe that was not that difficult for you. But what helps you realize that? What I would like to say, it's not so much not growing. I would love, so first of all, there's something that's called uh, critical mass. And it, it happens to humans, it happens to animals, it happens to all living creatures. It's a laws of physics will kick in, you know. So bigger does not always mean better. Now, naturally, if someone, you know, kicks off a company and they want to grow, at, to a certain point, uh, there will be a linear, a super linear rela a relationship between um, size gro growth in size and growth in um you know positive economics or maybe ri or something along those lines i've seen more companies than not the startups smaller companies that uh would immediately think oh getting bigger is the goal and they uh you know operate on a very thin budget and they just explode the first few years and then they go through a dramatic force reduction and they end up right where they started even even worse someone buys them out so it's better to uh, hold your horses and, and, and hold back on, on you know, exponential or even linear growth size-wise. Um, so it doesn't get out of proportion. And it's almost like, I don't want to be, a, I don't want to draw an analogy with any military um, strategy, but it's like you are advanced too far in, 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 in another land, or, or maybe I'll, I'll use another example. You, you're a researcher and you're a traveler and you're you know, um, an expeditionary unit and he's somewhere um, out in, in, in Alaska or, you know, somewhere in Tibet. And you, are, uh, you have advanced so far ahead of the logistics, ahead of your uh, food supply and water supply. You are so, you are intoxicated because of your advancement. And then you realize, oh my God, I'm running out of my local supplies and my legacy, uh, my, my logistics are so far back. That's a, it's exponential growth, advancement, as opposed to actually gradually growing, gradually advancing and pulling your logistics along. I'm not saying it's, it's a bad idea to grow. I think it's a good idea to grow, but it has to be uh, consistent with everything else. It has to be proportional and um, exponential growth uh, is just risky. So what because was the most uh, difficult situation you were dealing with in organizations? 
the most difficult situation I've dealt with organizations. I mean, for me personally, I'm going to stick to you. the most difficult aspect of organizational improvements. Um, it is changing organizational structure, uh, descaling, flattening your org structure without uh, creating turmoil and creating unsafe space for employees. Uh, organizations, uh, sadly, often in the name of Agile, and we are Agile and we are going to be reducing our headcount, uh, do force reduction and remove people just by firing people in cohorts. And it makes, and it's horrible because in, fa in fact, I'm a, uh, also, you know, I'm focused on large scale scrum. Um, and this is a descaling framework, if anything else. And we very strongly emphasize the importance of separating between job security and role security. You don't want to be uh, locally optimized for a role that's no longer needed, but everyone wants to have a job to be gainfully employed. So what companies do in the name of Agile, they just let people go. And guess what people develop? What sentiments do you, do you think they will develop towards that company? Towards Agile. That's because of Agile, I lost my job. And guess what they're going to do at their next job? Implicitly and explicitly resist to anything that has the word Agile adaptive concatenated to it. And that's a crazy thing. So um, that's the biggest challenge I've seen. It's, it's the most difficult part to um, teach organizational um, management executives how to um, become more adaptive and nimble without putting in jeopardy and at risk uh, their own people. Sometimes it, you know, there are ways we do it you know, as a parallel organization or as an early adoption. Uh, if it's a smaller company, it would be a flip. Uh, after months of education and, and learning, but we certainly do not wish to be perceived as, you know, people like agile coaches and agile consultants. We don't want to be perceived as ambassadors of, you got to let people go. Although, although you may certainly have redundancy and people with um, no longer needed skills, then you as an employer must think of ways to raise them up, to build them up. So it's a more challenging question, of course, the closer you are to those people that have stakes in, the, in, in, in a game, skins in a game, the easier to have these conversations. If you deal through layers of organizational translators and levels and levels, then it's going to be more difficult to convey the same message. And I understand that, yes. So we speak about at the beginning that you really like the radical topic. What is your most radical thought you have about the future of Agile? Radical thought would be, I guess, hmm, you got me there. So um, it, it almost take, I'll, I'll take one industry where I, you know, been around most like investment banking. Uh, my radical thought would be to have a bank who would genuinely and explicitly spin off and build a small parallel organization that is so unorthodox and so untraditional in its structure that can also uh, you know, function as good as a traditional org structure, but uh, would be much more nimble, much more light-footed, much more adaptive, agile. So not, and the radical part here would be, and I've seen that, of course, uh, these um, attempts and experiments uh, quite a bit in the FinTech, but I'm yet to see a company that would actually do this and almost create a logo for, it, for this small parallel organization 
with its parent company's logo and a little tiny, you know, graphic tweak that actually signifies the uniqueness of that small organization. And this would be my North Star, right? It would be my idol. Hey, look, not only did you do it, you actually gave it a identity, you know, public identity. That would be a very interesting thing to see. Thank you very much for your time. It was my pleasure to have you here. Yeah, thank you. It actually, I didn't stutter as much as I typically do. So uh, it's good to, to, to do this with you. In a summary, if teams don't have that adaptiveness at the first place at all, when they are not agile themselves, there is no way any scaling will work because there is nothing to be scaled. You only scale dysfunction and create an illusion of being agile, but the reality is that you only change the jargon, not the way you work, not the way you are. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Agile Way podcast hosted by Zuzi Shakova, author of the great Scrum Master book and Agile Leader book. If you love listening to this podcast, please leave us a review. If there is any topic you are particularly interested in and would like to hear another episode on it, let me know. For more information about me and my Agile classes, visit our website sochova.com S-O-C-H-O-V-A dot com Thank you for listening. Thank you.